Yo-ho, and welcome back to Ride Better, Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. Today, the Aero Testing Field Guide, where I share everything I know about reducing your CDA and the process of testing to find the gains. Plus, another continuous glucose monitor, this time a sports-specific option that was co-founded by a cyclist and they have signed Team Yumbo Visma and Canyon Shram as partners. It seems like an odd time to be talking about aero, considering all that's going on at the moment. But my mind has shifted to aero of late because I'm planning for next year. Working on refining my aero testing process, and I thought I'd share everything that I know about reducing your CDA so here's my top six straight off the bat. Number one, the importance of a good bike fit prior to aero testing is super important. Number two, up to 25 watts are to be gained from aerodynamic testing. Number three, most gains are found in front end optimization. Stack height, pad width, hand height, and helmet are where up to 80% of gains can be found. Position, clothes, and helmet are where it's at. Number four, you might not be able to change your body into a more aero position. Number five, optimizing skin suits, socks, clinches over tubulars can bring big gains. And the final one, number six, that without spending a lot of money, try to emulate as much as comfortably possible from the pros. Before we get into the aero testing field guide, I just wanna say upfront that the gains made by testing will vary from person to person and what your goals and targets are. A good benchmark of what's possible is gains in the region of 15 to 25 watts at race velocity. As a reference, 10 watts will save you a second per kilometer. So you're looking at a minute to a minute and a half over a 40 kilometer, 25 mile time trial. Some can find a whole lot more and some can find noticeably less. And it obviously depends on the level you're coming at and the level that you're competing at. Also a note on the testing method I use. The testing method I use is virtual elevation field testing using the Chung method. It's the best method that I've found to test aerodynamics. Specifically, I found that the half pipe method of repeats works really well. To test, you find a quiet stretch of road with a dip in it and ride down one side of the hill and up the other side, turn around at the top and repeat a few times for each session. The hill allows you to slow down without touching the brakes or changing position, which is really important. Finding the course to test on can be the hardest part of the whole process. There are a few things that you need to keep an eye out, like being able to hit race pace. So you can use things like an industrial park loop or a single out and back up a slight hill or a long residential block shaped like a half pipe with a dip in the middle. Shorter laps work and you don't need to hold your speed consistent throughout each lap. The only three rules that you need to follow while testing are don't touch the brakes, Stay in the same position the whole time and there can be no moving vehicles around you. No drafting, passing or being passed. There is much more information about this method online. So let's just get into the recommendations. To start, it's always recommended to have a proper bike fitting before you start testing. A qualified bike fitter who has intimate experience with aero positioning can help you adjust to a position that's comfortable, powerful and aerodynamic and you need this baseline. Field testing should only be used for minor changes in position and equipment, only items that do not affect the sustainability or efficiency of your position should be tested. Now let's dig into the golden triangle of aero. 
positioning, clothing, and helmet. Because as I just said, by focusing on these three, you can get 60 to 80% of the way there. Position, this is front end optimization. So stack height, pad width, hand height, arm separation. What you do at the front end alters the way the airflow interacts with the helmet, the torso, and the skin suit. Your hands are the first thing that hits the wind, and it sets the tone for what's going to happen to the airflow around the rest of the body. Even ignoring things like stack, you could find watts by just sorting elbow and hand position. If you have your hands clamped close together, generally speaking, that's quite good. With a rider who has a very narrow position, we're looking to move the air around the entire system, around their shoulders and head rather than through. But sometimes for very wide riders, you need to open up the hands and allow the air to channel through the body and out around the hips. A study from way back in 2010 called Optimal Hand Position for Individual Pursuit Athletes tested the aero drag of four hand positions on aero bars. And hopefully you can picture them. They are number one, normal hand position. This is the thumbs forward position. Number two, thumbs inside, rotating the hands in from the normal hand position. Number three, fist grip, holding the end of the arrow bar ends with no gaps in the fingers. And number four, arrow grip, following an arrow at each end of the bar by touching index and middle fingers together. The results? Aerodynamic drag can be reduced significantly by adapting an arrow style hand position when riding with arrow bars. I really wouldn't take too much notice of that result and we will get into why in a moment. But right now, the trend is a very, very high hand position. And that works when you're going very quick at lower your angles. But as you see higher your angles, the super high hand position can fall apart a little bit aerodynamically. This means it gets a little tricky when you're trying to optimize for both types of situations. If you're serious, it might be better to have two setups, a lower your angle setup and a higher your angle setup. In your crosswind setup, the higher your angle setup, a small gap or forearms touching is more efficient than having a gap between the forearms. However, the spacing the arms can affect respiration, which can have a knock-on effect to your power production, so it becomes a question of optimization. If you just want one position and you're looking to perform at a range of different distances, speeds and conditions, try to avoid a very high hand position. And as always, keep in mind that you need to be able to maintain the position for the duration of the event and preferably for the warm up as well. So this means that you should be reasonably comfortable. If it's uncomfortable, you're gonna lose a lot of mental energy, you're gonna use physical energy, trying to maintain that position. Also think about the safety and how you handle the bike in different corners, for example. And you also need to think about being able to get off those bars quickly in case you need to brake in a hurry. As a starting point, the three main variables that we're dealing with here at the front end are pad width, extension width, shape and degree of rise in the extensions, and extension pad elevation angle. Try this as a baseline. Have your hands slightly above your elbows. Make sure your elbows are at least in line with your knees and not too far in, hands with no more than a 15 millimeter gap and ever so slightly higher than your elbow. Once you've set this baseline, then you can start to play around with other areas like pad angle. And angling pads up will lower your elbows, bring your shoulders and head into a lower position. And it's not always possible to do this. And with a little research into aero bar systems that will let you make up to 20 degrees of movement might be what you have to look at. Then we go to pad width and extension width. And it's the same story here as with pad angle. Some pad mount systems are more adjustable than others. 
extension with adjustment tends to be limited or none at all with the more expensive base bar systems. The low end base bars that use separate clamps have a lot more flexibility, but at a cost of other functions and aero efficiency. Finally, is your choice of extension shape. There are a lot of options other than the traditional S-Bend extensions that have hit the market in the last couple of years. Of course, we've seen custom shapes on pro riders, but for everyone else, the choice comes down to two factors, comfort and aero performance of the resulting position. And this is only where testing will tell you what is best. The second test I'd look at is changing the pad width. If the starting position was narrow, then go wide or vice versa. The third position I'd look at is changing the extensions or elevate if the mounts allow that to raise your hands and same pad width as above. The fourth test would be back to the original pad width and the fifth test would be back to the original extensions and position baseline. Body position also plays a part here and in a perfect world you do a body position change with any of the pad and extension changes that you would make in any of the tests above. The body position changes are things like shrugging and head position and they come before the helmet though. Before hearing this, you might have thought that you go into a test and you look at helmet A versus helmet B, and it's a simple case of helmet A is more aerodynamic than helmet B, when in reality, it's far more based on the positioning of the helmet on the given person. Thus, I've seen on one person, helmet A is faster, while on the other, helmet B is faster. We'll go into helmets in a moment, but first, let's start with shrugging. No testing of positioning is complete without a shrug test. And this is where you shrug your shoulders in if you can and you tuck your head down as far as you're able to while still being able to see. It's lowering the position of your head without changing your rider position. This is without changing where your bike's armrests sit in space and narrowing your shoulders. The narrowing is likely the important part since it reduces frontal area. The thing about the shrug is, if it was a natural posture, we wouldn't have to perform it. We'd be shrugging it all the time without having to think about and concentrate on it. This means that the shrug, while easy enough, does require practice and concentration. And once your position is locked in, quantifying time spent in this position during training and racing is a huge priority. And this can be done a number of different ways, but mostly with your chosen tech solution. The reality of the shrug is that you might not be able to do it the entire time. In those cases, shrug when you can. Quiet stretches, straightaways, smooth downhills. Some is better than none. All right, how about some general rules? I hate to give them, but here we go. Smaller riders that are able to get into a super tight position can start to shape themselves by having an arm angle that matches their back angle, which can give them the right position when thinking about airflow after hitting the front of the rider. If you're bigger, then higher arms and hands can work better because it pushes air under the body. Now that you've messed around with positioning, we get to the second part of the golden triangle, helmets. And let me straight up say, you won't be getting any recommendations from me because there are no clear winners. It's just a matter of testing them out yourself. You just have to go through a range of helmets to find the one that works for you and your position. And really, test your assumptions on trends as well. An example here is short tail aero helmets. It's not about using one of these because you move your head around a lot. It always comes back to adopting the optimal head position and finding a helmet to fit. Quite often, a long tail or at least a medium tail helmet would be better. If you're moving your head around, train yourself to stay still. 
You train to find another 20 watts of FTP, so why wouldn't you train to hold a better head position for an extra 15 watts? All I'll really say is, do a baseline test with your road helmet before moving on, do a aero helmet test, and do a shrug test. And repeat that until you find the lowest number that works for your position. Now, the final part of the golden triangle, clothing. And let's start with skin suits. In 2018, Cycling Weekly did a test of six or seven skin suits with three test riders. They tested at 40 kilometers, 45 kilometers, 50 kilometers, and 55 kilometers an hour. And the big take home? Skin suits are incredibly personal to the rider. Surprise, surprise. And again, I could give you the name of the top companies, like Vortex Sports's 3,800 USD skin suit, but really, you have to pick something and test. Whatever's in the cupboard, start there and then keep testing. Sorry for the bad news. Outside of that, the most cost-effective thing out there is probably aero socks and shoe covers. They can yield a saving of up to 10 watts. Then outside of the golden triangle of aero, there are things like keeping your drive chain clean, buying some lube, where it's been shown that in general, a dry lubricant is better than a wet lubricant, and a wax or paraffin-based coating is an even faster option. A middle-of-the-road option is something like Silka's NFS lube. And finally, wheels and tires. A mid-range wheel set around 2,500 USD is good enough. The advantages of getting a really high-end wheel set in the range of around 6,500 USD does for most of the time not generate a significant increased performance. And in a tyre aerodynamics viewpoint, a clincher and a tubular actually behave pretty close to each other. The good thing with clinchers nowadays is there's a whole lot more development going into them, especially with tubeless clinchers. So if you look at a lot of the tyre data out there for the Corsa Speed G Plus from Vittoria, which has proven to be the fastest tyre out there. Finally, there is a lot to be said about having a look at what the top guys are doing but equally, it is very personal, like I've been trying to point out all along. So yeah, look at what they're doing with their hand position, elbow position, helmet, skin suit, wheel, tires, etc. At the end of the day, they're going fast for a reason, which can get you pretty damn close if you look around and do some research on their equipment and what you're trying to achieve. I hope that gives you a good insight into a process where you can start looking at the different elements of aero and testing. I do offer this as a service. If you're interested and you want some help with this, head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash aero dash testing. It's time once again for The Chaser, the segment of the show where I talk about something that's probably unreleased, untested, or has nothing to do with cycling. And this time we're talking about something I actually brought up a couple of episodes back, a product called Levels, a real-time blood glucose monitor, which is out in the wild, and I was pretty pumped about it. My enthusiasm died a little bit after finding that it is USA only, and you need a doctor's consultation to use it for the 28-day intro package. And on top of that, to get your hands on it right now, you have to be a tech influencer. So you can imagine, I was super happy when I found an alternative that not only is aimed at sports, but is co-founded by a cyclist, Phil Sutherland, the guy that started the Novo Nordisk cycling team. And they have signed Team Jumbo Visma and Canyon Shram as partners for this product. 
The other founder is a guy called Todd Fourneau, which I couldn't find any info on, but it's not really important. By the looks of it, their company, Super Sapiens, has built the app side of a system with a live streaming watch possibly on its way. And another company, Abbott, which is a huge player in diagnostics, medical devices, nutrition, and pharmaceuticals, has created what they are calling the world's first glucose sport biosensor designed for athletes, the Libre Sense glucose sport biosensor. The biosensor sits at the back of the upper arm, yes, with a little brick sticking into your arm, and it sends real-time glucose levels over Bluetooth to your phone. It's worth noting that this is a non-exclusive collaboration with Super Sapiens and more than likely means there may be other third-party apps that enter this space in the future. Each biosensor is good for up to 14 days of continuous wear and records data minute by minute. Now let's dig in a little to see what the app offers and how it could be used for cyclists. First up is the Live Graph, which is an active squiggly line that shows you your blood glucose level with a target range so you know how food and exercise impact your glucose levels as they happen. The squiggly line is actually a trend arrow that shows you where your glucose levels are headed and this is probably the most important part so you know when to refuel. Next up is something they've called event analytics. I imagine this is a way to isolate events like a bike ride or sleeping and then getting the metrics that are linked directly to that event. So the metrics are glucose minimum, average, stability, glucose max, trailing average, and primary zone. That way you can work out your fueling strategy for separate events. And this is a much better approach than levels. The final part is something that they're calling insights. And it looks to be the same metrics in the events, but for an entire day and with more details. So this will hopefully be able to help you make adjustments and get the information for the entire day, or maybe it's another larger period that you're looking at, a month or a week even. It's important to note that none of this system has been released yet, and while we don't know the cost of the app, we only know on their website, it says that the app can be downloaded for free. Uh, there's an, uh, an Apple version and a Google Play version, and the app will not be available for download until you receive your biosensor. And that's slated for December 2020. This is also when the biosensors are claimed to be rolling out. You can pre-order them now though. It will be available over the counter in eight European countries to people 16 and over and through Super Sapiens website. The countries that the product will be initially made available are Austria, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and UK. I suspect this is because there's no need for a medical doctor to prescribe and they can be bought over the counter in these countries, but someone may be able to tell me if that's correct or not. When looking at the biosensors themselves, they come in three options. The first one is a subscription pack of two for 130 euros every 28 days. Or number two option is a trial two pack for 160 euros. Number three is a training six pack for 420 euros. Not cheap, but four weeks of focus testing may be all you need to set yourself up with better fueling strategies on and off the bike. I'm definitely excited about this project and will be trying to get my hands on a biosensor as soon as they come out. Now that is all I've got for you this show. I wanted to wrap up with a Joe Friel tweet. Joe Friel, the father of organized coaching and training information, his bike Bible. You may follow it, you may not. You may like the guy, you may not. 
I've got to say, I've interviewed him. He's a lovely man. I think he's contributed a lot to the sport in many different ways. But I really think his strength, as far as being a prolific content creator, is these tweets are nice, small, round ways of summing up important parts of the athletic process. So here's the tweet I got for you this time. When very fit and fast, you are at a critical point. Injury and illness are one mistake away. Don't get greedy. And I'll leave you with that. Ride better, faster. Is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well. Ah!